Uh, I got one announcement. That's nothing to do with the message or anything. I don't know. Um, one thing to tell you, uh, men's breakfast, our next, next men's breakfast is March 10th. It's at 8 a.m. on March 10th. They usually make a great breakfast. Sometimes they even have bacon. Got inspired. Uh, and sometimes they have cinnamon rolls and bacon. I'm not saying that's what they're going to make, but if they did, it would be awesome. <clears throat> Guys in charge of that. So anyway, uh, March 10th, 8 a.m., uh, I believe there's a sign-up at the Welcome Center. They like to, you, you know, if you forget to sign up, you can still come. It's just to help them to know how much food to make. So if you'd like to, sign up at the Welcome Center for that so they know. So welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you do not own one, we'd love for you to take that home with you. You can have that. If you forgot one, you can use one. There's normally sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room, but for the course of the series we're doing, we have these booklets that our staff help put together. Uh, grab one of those. You'll get sermon notes and verses that are in there as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Version. Click on More and then Events in Version. And we do have something in there during this series, but it's not the full thing you'll get in the booklet. Uh, you're going to get some links to a couple things, the verses we go through, and some announcements, but that, that's about it. But you still can, follow, if you're not quick in your Bible to like find some things I ask you to turn to, in the app you're going to be right there so you can use that. Uh, my name is Aaron, I'm one of the pastors here, why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is 1 Timothy 1.17, and it says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people that live out the goodness that you have first given to us, that we would understand who you are by what you have called us to be, that we would understand the redemption and the reconciliation and the life-giving hope that you give to your people. And we would then be a people who image bear you to this world and that everyone would know how great you are because of your great love for us. Amen. I'm seat. All right. So we are in this journey together as a body of believers through the understanding of the gospel to understand what the gospel means better. Hence, these booklets didn't see that coming because really all of God's gifts to us are something that nobody really ever saw coming. God does it because he himself is good. So these journey guides, they're going to have short daily devotions in there. They're very short, but they'll help kind of move you forward in what we talk about in a given week. Uh, There's family discussions. There is gospel community discussion questions in there to read through and talk to your friends or your gospel community about. It's all to help get us in the habit of spending time with God every single day and walking through these very practical things that God calls us to be in our lives. And at the end of every message, we have these gospel statements that we are giving you. And the gospel statement is simply meant to sum up what we've talked about on a given day so that you can kind of walk around with the remembrance of that, maybe rewrite it in your own words. Last week's gospel statement was this. The gospel is the good news that through Jesus' rescue and redemption of mankind that we are sent to be his message of redemption to the world. And again, these statements are a way for us to take what was said in practical ways and remember it in practical ways so we'd be able to speak of it in practical ways to those around us. Now, the gospel, as I keep saying, is not just a catchy word that Christians like to say. The gospel literally means good news. It's definitive good news about an event of some sort. Christians get a hold of that, and we run around and we say the gospel is the definitive good news about what God did to rescue us from our lost and hopeless way of life. 
Uh, every week when we go through this series, I give you a lot of bad news that people did, uh, but good news on the other side that God can, continues to come and restore and redeem. We lose track of all God calls us to, and he keeps pushing and moving us back onto track with him. Every time God does a redeeming act, somehow people find a way to mess it up. But God keeps coming in and doing some great things, even in the midst of our sin, to restore us again. You'll see that again in what we talk about today. And every week I almost seem to go back and start in the book of Genesis, and I'm going to do that a little bit today again. And I'm I'm telling you, when you ask the question, how many times can you start in Genesis? I'm telling you, challenge accepted, because I will like do it all the time, right? It's kind of important to where we get through every single week to get to the progress. Like the first four weeks of the series, we were in the book of Genesis. And the last two, we moved to the book of Exodus where God hears these people's cry in the midst of slavery and he brings them out. He brings them to this mountain called Sinai. He reminds them of their mission and identity, that they're image bearers of God, that to be his priests to the world. And now they get to their own country. And for centuries of Israel's existence, they did not have a human king. And the only way they got a human king was to beg a prophet named Samuel because they stopped trusting God and his goodness. They thought God didn't really see what was going on in their lives, that God didn't really care about all that they were going through, much like a lot of people do today. And we never see all that good that God is actually doing. So the last six weeks, you've seen God constantly care for these stubborn people by seeking them out and saving them. Uh, We write people off so much faster than we think. And we, we think God should do what we do, right? Someone offends us and hurts us, they're done. God doesn't do that. God continues to chase people down because he is good. And so again, last two weeks, God brings these people out of slavery, gives them freedom, a mission, gives them a country, and you will see how that isn't even enough for them. But again, you got to start in Genesis like always. So one of the great questions the Bible answers is, why are we here? Why does God make the human race? This is an idea that starts in the backdrop of Genesis and goes all the way through the book of Revelation. When we as a people see the gospel, the scriptures, their fullness, this understanding of the Bible, we can see how it can literally transform our lives and other people's lives around us. This is the revelation of Jesus, of what he has done and continues to do, and with the kind of relationships he intends for you and me to have in this world with those around Around us, And so before starting in Genesis, I'm going to start before Genesis. I know it's kind of weird, but that's, that's what I got to do because everything that's ever written has a context. It's important when you come to the Bible to understand the context, especially with certain verses like Matthew 18, 8, Jesus says, and if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away context becomes very important because if you don't have context we're going to be hobbling around on crutches we can't hold because we don't have hands or feet so it's just gonna be really kind of awkward so back kind of before genesis was was even written israel lived not in a vacuum but in in the midst of different cultures so israel surrounded by all these people primarily there's this place called mesopotamia but there's also the sumerians the assyrians the babylonians the canaanites and also the egyptians and all these people had their own religions they all had their gods and the gods had different names but they all had this common way that there's like a hierarchy of how all of these things were set up and how they looked at life so in these cultures at the very top you would have the gods whatever they were all these cultures were polytheistic they believed in many gods like, a, you know, release the Kraken or Thor and his hammer and Loki and his trickerness and the all, you know, all these different gods like that. 
underneath this, the hierarchy of the gods, there would be the king of whatever country worshipped those gods. Underneath the king, there is the court with officials and the priests who were in there, and they all reported to the king. Underneath that is a next layer, and they would be artisans and merchants and craftspeople and academics. And then underneath them is the largest group of people in a kingdom, and these were peasants and slaves. Peasants and slaves were considered to be the dregs of humanity. All of us in this room would be peasants and slaves. That, that, that's who we are. There's not many people beneath them. I think the only people beneath peasants and slaves are people in a boy band. I got four. People who don't know how to use roundabouts. People who make light beer. And Fifty Shades of Grey pants. Okay, so... It's like, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, okay, so everybody in these ancient cultures, including Mesopotamia, they saw and treated their king as divine or semi-divine. The king is understood to be made in the image of the God who created that king. Now, the word image that's used in Genesis, it's important in understanding of ourselves and what God says. The Hebrew word for image is this word called salim or salim. The word is probably borrowed from these other cultures. And again, this is really important. Only a country's king was thought to be made in the image, the salim of the God. That's the dividing line between the king and every other person of the human race. Peasants and slaves were not thought to be made in the image of a god. In fact, in a lot of cultures, with all these different gods, they thought, well, peasants and slaves were created by inferior gods, because inferior gods make inferior creatures. But the king, well, the king himself, he is the mediator of the whatever the most powerful god is, and, and the blessings flow through this person. Another important thing to remember is that this word solemn in the scriptures is also used of the word image or idols. So all of these religions would also have these images and these idols. These idols were controlled by the priests who were under the control of the king. So everybody only had access to heaven through the king. You following? Oh, man, you guys are way better. First service is like... You guys actually answered it, so that's good. So th- this, is a, this is how the human race works when you put people at the center of existence. We become our own gods. But what you, nobody ever saw coming is the book of Genesis is going to challenge that because God's going to reveal himself and how he made mankind. Genesis has a very different account of creation. In Genesis, it's the Spirit of God, capital S, of this one true God, and he is going to order creation. Over the seven days of creation, God makes seven speeches. The final one will ordain the Sabbath day as being the holy day the writer of genesis deliberately uses language that would be used by a king because god is placed in a royal role because god is israel's king and what does god say genesis 1 3 let there be light and there was light that's because that's how a king reigned a king would make royal proclamations and that's just what it was let there be light there was light let there be taxes, and there were taxes. Let there be Obamacare, and there's Obamacare. Let there be fake news, and there's fake news. It's, it's kind of like that. God is portrayed as a sovereign king, though not an earthly king. And we're told in the seventh day, God finishes what he has been doing. And when I say that Genesis you know, says God is a sovereign king, it doesn't just say that he's only sovereign. It also tells you that he is generous, he is wise, that he delights in his creation. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. The idea of very good is that God delights in his creation. It is filled with the glory, the character, the goodness, the generosity of this great God who makes it. 
And then God, on this earth, he creates a place for human beings to be, the Garden in Eden. And you're told these little facts about the Garden of Eden. This is in the second chapter of Genesis. It says that there are rivers of water that flow. Genesis 2.10, it says there's gold in that land, and it's good gold, not opposed to the bad gold. I don't know what bad gold is, but I'll take it. Uh, there's aromatic resin and onyx, Genesis 2.12. So why does the writer talk about flowing water? Because later this is representative of the Spirit of God. Why does he say there's gold and onyx and resin and all these things? Because these material are going to later be used for the building of God's temple. When Moses writes this, these people are wandering around in this wilderness. God has a, a tabernacle, a tent that travels along with them, and the presence of God is there. So God is in and among his people. And there's all these things that are used in the worship of God. God, gold to make things beautiful. Resin makes it smell good. You have these different stones all used in worship. And this was to help them to understand that, yes, God's traveling with you here, but in the garden, God was especially present there. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. And we talk about the fall of man from Genesis 3. We speak about it in terms of sin, certainly. But you're also told in Genesis 3 that Adam hears the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That's to show that the earth, that's like God's temple. And the garden is like the most holy place. And his people were his priests in this temple loving and worshiping and having communion with God. Adam and Eve represent, they were priests in this garden with God. And so Genesis 1.26, this is what's said. Uh, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Go to verse 27. So God made man in his own image, and the like, in the image of God he created him, and male and female he created them. Now that word for image is that word solemn. It means in the image of God, God created all human beings. That statement from the right of the book of Genesis is one of the most world-changing statements about human dignity, value, and worth ever recorded, and nobody saw it coming because everybody just assumed that this is how the world worked. There's the king, and then there's everybody else. And here God reveals himself, and he says, no, I created all of you in my image. Today, as believers, part of what we rest our lives on is that statement that we are made in the image of God. All that we talk about through this Didn't See That Coming series is the understanding that God is restoring us and calling us back and redeeming us to be his image in the world. It changes the entire human race's understanding about itself. Imagine what it did to peasants and slaves to be told that not just the king, but they too were made in the image, the seldom of the one great God. Male and female, slaves and peasants made in God's image. And God called his people then to a community where they saw everyone else as being made in the image of God. They're supposed to treat one another that way. Nobody on top, nobody on the bottom. That doesn't mean there's not different roles or different jobs. Like if you're in the military, right, you got a general and you got a private. But one is not supposed to see themselves better than the other. It's everybody on the same page. I mean, think about this. What, what if cops didn't profile or feel the need to profile? What if we didn't see people from an opposite political party as you know, spawns of the devil and have no idea what they're talking about? What if we didn't actually do that? What would our country have started like if we actually saw everyone as being truly equal? What would it have been like? This is what the gospel is meant to restore us to a proper understanding of who God made us to be. And that should in turn not only reflect how we worship and love God, but how we then in turn treat one another. 
What if there was a community where somebody with billions of dollars saw someone who was homeless and treated them with dignity, honor, and respect? What would that look like? Not where you just throw money at it to take care of it, but actually, what can we do to help change this situation? You know, do, do we need better mental care? Do we need better health? What, what do we need? How can we do something? What if young and old and black and white and brown and yellow and purple and male and female all came together? What would that, that would look like the kingdom of God. That's what God intends. And I think this is why today self-esteem courses that are taught are just terrible because they try to convince you that there is no God or if there is a God, you're it. And it's horrible because we're never going to bring unity that way because we all naturally want to divide ourselves from one another. The truth is low self-esteem is painful because you were made in the image of God. That's why it's painful. You have dignity, value, and worth, not because you're so wonderful, but because God is. And he has bestowed on you these blessings that you are made in his image. The Latin phrase for this is imago Dei. Uh, the Hebrew, this is selim Elohim, the image of God. And this is why the mistreatment of somebody else in our world is very serious to God. So you still with me now? All right. All right. So. Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, got Noah builds this boat, gets off the ark, and God here gives the rule of law. One of them is we're not supposed to murder each other. Okay, It's very important. Don't do that. Uh, Genesis 9, 5 says, From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Why? Verse 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. That means you have never looked at another human being, no matter how ragged they may appear to you, what their refugee status is, what their political status is, who was not ever made in the image of God. Everyone made in the image of God. This is revolutionary. And it's how we are meant to see the world around us. The gospel, the good news, moving forward till we understand, yes, we are made in the image of God. We're called to be God's priests of the world, but this is how we also see the rest of the world around us. So when Genesis and Exodus gets written, you have these countries who have these kings who see themselves as divine, as better than. I'm not there to serve my people. My people are there to serve me because I'm better than them. But Israel has a different story. Israel did not have a king. They had a personal God who was to be Israel's king. He reveals himself as king over his people, but a personal God who made them in his image. This is one of the reasons when you read through the first five books of the Bible, you see these things that are called civil laws, like God is going to govern his people. And at this point in time, he wants his people to look different than everybody else. So you have certain laws that are in there that maybe you not necessarily have to follow today, like uh, don't cut your sideburns. Uh, if you if you poop, dig a hole. We have toilets. I don't really feel like going and digging a hole every time I got to go. Don't eat lobster. How do you like lobster? See, that's in there, okay? That's in there. Don't get tattoos. Oh, my goodness. Most of you, right? <laughs> what are you going to do with that? You can't, you can't wear a poly cotton blend in a shirt because you're not half supposed to have two woven fabrics. Oh, no, that's like all of our clothes today. What, what do you, do? you can't put two different seeds in the field. All these, but, but it was only meant to be so people would see what's different about those people. And these people would then be welcoming and invite people in and say, God made you in his image. Follow him. Surrender your life to who he is. Be part of what God is doing in the world. It was all meant to be this thing that people would see his people and say, wow, something is different about those guys. Now, don't think that God didn't see the people asking for a human king coming. He actually does. Uh, God says to Abraham in Genesis 17, 6, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. God knew the ideal for his people, but he also knew what they would do. So open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 17. You don't hear that a lot in church, right? 
Deuteronomy 17. Like, open Deuteronomy 17. Uh, last week we saw how God, you know, he hears their cry in Egypt. He sets them free. He brings them to this mountain called Sinai. He reminds them to be his message to the world. And now they are in a country of their own. But between Sinai, they wander in this desert for 40 years before they actually come to their country. And before they get to their country, God tells them something here in Deuteronomy 17. This is verses 14 through 20. It's long, but just go with me and hear God's admonition. It's what he says. When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from a Among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Don't become too rich. And he sit, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it, read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and all in these statutes and doing them. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brother's how important that is in there, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God knows they're going to clamor for a human king at some point, because we always have such a hard time trusting God. But God also knows Israel's need is not for a military genius or a military hero. Their need is for someone who actually loves him and understands God's call in their life. John Woodhouse writes this. He says, God had demonstrated unambiguously that he could deal with their enemies without such a champion. Their need was not for a brilliant political giant who could organize a nation efficiently. Israel's need could not be met by management abilities. Israel's great need was a leader who would bring them back to God. They needed a leader who would lead them in righteousness. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel 8. So after Israel actually gets into their country, God is giving them prophets who speak the word of God to them so they would remember all the things God calls them to. One of the greatest is this guy named Samuel. And when Samuel was old, the Israelites go to Samuel, as God said they would do. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, and they say, Behold, you are old, which is always a nice way to start a conversation. Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now Samuel tries to talk them out of this. Samuel knows it's not God's best for their lives, but they refuse to listen. Go down to verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. God called them to be different than all the nations around them. And what do they say? We just want to be like them. We like how they do it. We want to be like that, which is exactly how a lot of us live our lives. We get so jealous of what other people have and how other people's lives are going, and we want to be just like them. You hear that old statement, keeping up with the Joneses? I got a friend named Sean Jones, so... I don't know about that. He says he tries to keep up with me, but I don't know. Uh, it, we're always trying to find somebody else and connect with what they're doing rather than what God calls us to. 
I mean, in this, they sound like a bunch of second graders. Like, everybody else has a king. We want a king. How come we can have a king? Ah, we're the 99%. Give me a king. Come on. What's up? Bill Arnold writes this. He says, it is true that Yahweh was not opposed to an Israelite monarchy. Rather, he was opposed to the kind of monarchy Israel is now demanding. She wants a king like the nations around her, a kingship that will bring her power and political influence. And so God says to Samuel, you know what, Samuel? Give him a king. Give him a king. It's not you they're rejecting. It's me. And God is not giving up on the Israelites, okay? God continues to come, and God's still going to bring his purposes. He's now instead going to work through their sin instead of their obedience to do it. Essentially, for the Israelites, it now just gets a lot more painful. Ever happened to you? No. You're like, I'm not going to listen to you, God. And God's like, yeah, well, I'm just going to put you here anyway because you need to be over here. You're like, ah, it's just more painful actually getting there. From here, they set up a man named Saul as king over them, not based upon godliness or love of god but based more upon appearance first samuel 9 1 and 2 tells you saul was taller than other people comes from a family of wealth and influence it's pretty good looking like all the best ways to choose a king right there but you see you know where israel tried to focus on men and not upon god and in the end it will bring about the downfall of their country they didn't see that coming they didn't see it i think what's good for us to understand in terms of the gospel is that nobody though had a story like israel where a king doesn't even come until later and more as a concession. And the king is not the only one made in the image of God. Everybody in the kingdom is meant to be priests. Everybody is meant to be made in the image of God. We're all supposed to understand that. In terms of kingship and people, the Bible brings this revolutionary understanding of humanity and who God is. The fact that we were made in the image of God tells us not just about our worth and value, though it does, but it also tells us about our destiny. There's a very clear historical context behind the notion of being made in the image of God. So if you were here last week, you know, we kind of talked about this, you know, in his image, all that kind of stuff. In, in ancient times, there, there's no media, there's no internet, there's no newspapers. So what a king would do is they would make images of themselves. And they would put them all over their kingdom so everybody knew who, who the king was. You know, I'm in control, not you. Kind of like in our day. Politicians will put their names on bridges or on overpasses or things like that. You go to the post office, you get a picture of the governor or the president because it's all about who's in charge. And they want you to know it's not you. Okay, that's what it's there for. The writer of Genesis is saying that, that just as these kings would place images of himself all over a country, when you are made in the image of God... That is God placing his image everywhere so that people would know who this great God is that we serve. His people are meant to be this image. N.T. Wright has a great thing about this in his book called The Day the Revolution Began. And he talks about this. He said, this is what it means to be the image of God. It's not about this quality or that quality or whether you have reason or free will or something like that. It's about our role, he says, in the cosmic scheme of things, that we were made to reign under the character of God, with God's power, in God's stead, for the benefit of the earth, so that all the earth would know whose power and reign it is under that we are made in the image of God. And God's plan is to graciously share his power and goodness and generosity to the world by creating a community of loving persons who would exercise dominion and stewardship in his strength, marked by his goodness. That's who we are meant to be. We are to believe that God is ruling and reigning, that Jesus is our true king. And under his reign, we are sent to be his image bearers in the world. And though we mess it up just like the Israelites do, it doesn't diminish our calling. It doesn't cancel it out. So this is my gospel statement for you guys this week, okay? 
Here it is. The gospel is the good news that God is ruling and reigning, and he has restored us to relationship and life with him. So we would be his image bearers of who he is to the world by words and actions. And I didn't have you repeat it last week, but I am going to have you repeat it this week, okay? Ready? Three, two, one. The gospel... See, this is practically what the gospel calls people back into, this image bearing. Do you know that there's even a little picture of this in the Garden of Eden where God brings the animals to man to see what he would name them, right? God doesn't name the animals. We probably would have gotten much better names if God did it, right? But, but hey, at least we get boggle words like cat and dog for those of us who are bad at it, right? So that's, right? You're told in Genesis 2.19, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. That's a little reflection of the Selim Elohim in the image of God. Anybody here ever have a pet? Whether it's a goldfish or whatever, you know. See, you name your pet. You don't just call it, hey, you, right? You name it. Why? Because you have responsibility for it. You're supposed to take care of it. Because God places in us this idea that we're in the image of God and we're supposed to steward things around us. It's a little bit of them. I think we've got a little bit of God's heart in us. People ask me this question a lot. You know, will there be dogs in heaven? Yes, there'll be dogs in heaven. Maybe not your dog, but there will be dogs in heaven. There won't be cats, okay? There won't be dogs. You have this idea from the beginning to the end of the scriptures, this gospel, this restoration of the image of God in mankind. And when we understand it, we're supposed to, with humility, add goodness and beauty to families and neighborhoods and societies and nations, to people who are hungry and people who aren't hungry, to people who are homeless and people who have a home, to people who are educated and people who have no education, so that God's whole creation becomes a glorious delight and generosity and righteousness to all who see it, because we are made in the image of God. When we surrender our lives to Jesus, it's this understanding that he is redeeming and restoring us and rescuing us back into this image. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's the story right there. That's the narrative. This world is not an accident. We're, We're not a bunch of random evolutionary blobs of protoplasm that float around the universe. We're not. N.T. Wright says this. He says, your destiny is to contribute more creative God-given goodness to the earth than you can currently imagine than to offer more earthly joy and gratitude to God than you can currently contain. That's a beautiful calling in our lives. Maybe you in your life today, you're a little disappointed with how your life has turned out. Maybe you had accomplishments or things you wanted to do when you never actually got there and did those things. Don't worry about it because you have so much more in front of you in God's eternity than you ever have behind you. And God is restoring and rescuing and bringing you in. And in the end, you will learn that it is not about you and your accomplishments. It's about Jesus and his accomplishment of what he did for us to rescue and redeem us at the place of the cross. The good news is that God has called us back into relationship with him. He has set us on mission to be his people in the world. That we would be a people who understand being made in the image of God isn't that we're better than other people. It's that seeing that we understand it in a way that we go out and treat people around us like they were made in the image of God. We get to speak of his goodness and his grace and that God wants to restore everybody into relationship with him. And so we are the ones who get to speak about it. 
We get the joy of giving these words of hope and rescue because our God has rescued us. This is why we talk about communion every week. It's where you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because our great God loves us so much that he brings us back into relationship with him again. And so we take community remembrance of that. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you guys to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back if you need prayer. If you feel like you have marred the image of God in you, if you've never understood what that even means, or to how to live out being image bearers, they would love to pray with you. They would love to pray with you. I, our God is so much better than we can ever ask or imagine. And so this is why we understand at the place of the cross that Jesus rescued and brought us back into relationship by his own sacrifice, by what he has done. This is why we have all these different ways that we worship him in a given Sunday. There's offering boxes uh, by every door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. At Element, we do not pass a plate. It's meant to always be a response to what God has done. Uh, There's food outside. You grab something to eat. We give you food so that you would maybe hang out a little bit and talk to some other people and get to know some other people and maybe take some of those questions in the journey guides. And you'd start to ask these questions about what it means to truly be an image bearer what it means to really live out as an image bearer in this world and to see other people in a particular way that God has rescued, redeemed, called us back in, called us home, sent us out to be his people in this world. We get to live on mission with an identity that we are children of God made in his image because our God is gracious and our God is good and he loves us and have not, has not left us in our lost and broken state. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you'd remind us day by day what it means to live as your image bearers in this world. Father, I ask that you would help us to see the times where maybe we don't say the words, but we kind of feel this way in our hearts that we want to be like everybody else. We want to have what everybody else has. And by doing that, stepping away from your calling in our lives. And I ask that today we would see the places that we have done that and step back into the calling. Because it is your grace that restores us. It is your hope that brings us back in. I ask that we begin to understand that our lives make sense only when we see them as being image bearers of who you are. That you have bestowed upon us such great grace. Such value and worth. And yet we keep trying to find it in all these other places that are not you. And we keep marring your image in us. So today, have us be those who begin to remember that our value and worth comes from you as our God who has rescued and restored us. And have us as one people begin to worship you by living as your image bearers in this world that you would so change our view of those around us that we wouldn't see ourselves as enemies of others, but we'd see ourselves as being sent to proclaim the good news of who you are to everyone. That you would truly make us a humble people because we understand what you have done to rescue us. We ask all this in your son's good name. Amen.